0: mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our sermon today is going to break up this text into four parts and we'll sing hymn verses in between. And remember that you're saved by grace. So as we begin to talk about holiness, it is important to always remember that it's God's grace which actually makes our holiness possible. And in that, you can know that you are also sharing in God's holiness. Preparing your mindset is the first thing Paul addresses. The second thing is to call on your Father. The third thing is to love one another. And then the last thing is to come to Jesus. It begins with preparing your mind. And I I just want to break down this text and give you a few thoughts to take away and let your heart rest on these things as we go through the text. Preparing your mind. Peter wants you to get your mind ready. So any task that's worth doing is worth preparing for. It's worth thinking about. It's worth having your whole self equipped and ready to do what God's asking you to do. And so he says, prepare your mind for action. That's the translation I have. If some of you are opening up your Bibles, you might see a different translation. In the New King James, it has the translation, gird up the loins of your mind. Now for us, we probably have no idea what that means. Sounds a little strange, but I'll tell you that when you start talking about holiness, you start talking about strange things. In fact, being a Christian is strange. And thinking about being holy and being with God and knowing what it is to walk with God in your daily life is going to be a strange experience. An experience that in some ways can be troubling, anxiety-filled, guilt-ridden, and then in the other hands, filled with peace, filled with hope, filled with love. Prepare your mind for this struggle Gird up the loins of your mind is a phrase that comes from the Old Testament. You have to go back to the story of the Passover. And it was during the Passover that God was bringing the last plague on Egypt, and he was telling his people to prepare. It was going to be a dark night, a night that was filled with some trouble, some affliction, and even some death. And he instructed his people to prepare. They were to have a meal ready. They were to sacrifice a lamb, put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, and then gather as a family behind closed doors to pray, worship, and share a family meal together. But they weren't gonna sit down in the evening with their pajamas on. Instead, they were going to sit down to that meal at midnight and be dressed for camping. And you know if you're going to go out hiking into the woods and you're going to be a day's journey or two days journey or three days journey out into the mountains, you better be prepared. So they were to have their hiking clothes on and girding up their loins meant taking this kind of a garment they might be wearing, and you know you can't really run very well in this thing, and you can't really hike very well, so it got tucked up into their belt. It was their outer garment got tucked up, and that way they were ready for travel. They were gir- gird up their garments. So Peter wants you to think of this preparation in terms of your own spiritual Challenges, trials, journey, it's all built on what comes before. We had that last Sunday, or two Sundays ago, where we saw the beginning of Peter. He says, you're born again to a living hope, and there's one thing I can guarantee, that as soon as you are born again to a living hope, you're going to realize something. It is not easy that as soon as you're born again to a living hope, you're gonna face trials that are going to test the sincerity of your heart. That's where this word therefore comes in in our text. Therefore, because you know you have a living hope, because you know you're gonna face trials, therefore, you better be prepared for action. Gird up the loins of your mind and be sober-minded to set your hope fully on the grace that is yours to come when Jesus reveals himself. This brings us to holiness. Be holy for I am holy. There's plenty of misunderstandings about what holiness really is. At the time of Martin Luther, holiness was thought of as something that you achieve, something that you could increase in Or decrease in depending on how you were living your life. In fact, that's the way a lot of people still think about it today. Holiness is something to be gained, it's something to be lost, and for any of us to say we're a saint would surely be a foolish prideful thing for most people to hear. But the funny thing is, is the Bible says you are saints. And he says it, it says it to the most sinful of people that know their works and achievements have not gained them this worthy status. It must be something else. And so again, you have to go back to the Old Testament to understand what holiness is. And being holy in the Bible is never defined. There is really no passage that defines clearly for us the meaning of the word holiness because holiness is connected directly to something in God that can be found nowhere else. We can compare a lot of things in this world to what God is like, beautiful, gracious, glorious. But holy means he's unlike anything we could think of. He's separate. He's outside of any other God. He's outside of any other human effort. He's outside of anything we're doing. He is holy and completely separate from sin, from sickness, from pain, from death. And this is the holy God that says now to you, you are holy. Can you prepare your minds for that? Can you prepare your minds to accept that truth, that God, who's unlike anything we could imagine, he's so glorious and great, and says to you, now you are holy. And what it means is that you get to come, and you get to be with God. We'll find out more about that in our second part. We'll sing the next two stanzas by Grace Alone. If you're being honest with yourself and you are trying to imagine this holiness that's yours now, that you should consider yourself holy and you're honest with yourself, you're probably struggling. You're struggling to imagine how that could be true because you know yourself and you know the way your mind works, you know the struggles you go through, you know the sins that you've committed in the past. That's what leads us to this next logical point, which is to pray. It's at this point where we must pray, because without prayer, how could we ever deal with all these questions and conflicts inside of us? So call on your father, Peter says. And when you do, you must remember who your father is. He says, to call on your father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds and conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, if we're coming to the judge, we probably don't feel too good about our case. How are we going to put our deeds before the one who is going to judge us and expect we're going to come out okay? This is your judge, your future, your life, your outcomes. Everything is in his hands. And if you've ever been in a courtroom, you know everything is regulated. Everything is thought through and controlled so that the person on trial has no place to go And the only outcome is going to be determined by what the judge finally says. Those are the laws and rules that we follow. When the evidence is brought forward, the verdict is clear. The angel of death is waiting on the other side of the door to come in and take the plaintiff, the criminal, the accused, and lead him off to the final sentencing, death. But before that judgment is delivered, the back of the courtroom doors open and there's a lamb that's brought in. In fact, he's not actually brought in. There's no leash. There's nothing forcing this lamb to go. The lamb just simply walks in on his own and stands before the judge. The judge looks at the lamb and says, very well. Take him away. And then the same officer that was going to take you captive takes the lamb out of the courtroom and he's gone. Now you're standing there wondering what this all means. Because there's three days of waiting you need to do while Jesus is on the cross and you're thinking about your sinfulness. There's a very good reason why Peter says, be afraid. Fear the Lord. Realize that during those three days, between Jesus on the cross and Jesus risen from the dead, you need to ponder your attitude, your heart, whether you're really taking God seriously or not. Then after the three days have passed and the Lord has put into your heart this realization that there's a new truth, you know, knew something that wasn't there before. The lamb comes back out. He's been slain. He's got a scar across his throat. But he's living. And his head is held high because the verdict is clear and it's over. You are forgiven. And this is the picture of redemption that Peter says, if you're going to call on your father, remember... That you are redeemed from your futile ways. That there's no effort on your part. There's no program. There's no system. There's no money. There's no tradition or ritual that can give this to you other than faith. So believe it. We'll sing the next two hymn verses 5 and 6. The love of God has redeemed you and invited you to call on him as your father. And now he wants to take you home. So that judge you had sitting on the throne, who was ready to give your sentence, says, in fact, he doesn't even say it. He just gets down off the throne, comes to you, takes the robe off, the white robe that he's been wearing, he puts the robe on you, puts his arm around you, and he says, let's go home. Because that's your father. And when your father takes you home, he wants you to be part of a family. And part of a family means struggle and also love. He has first loved you so that the love he puts into your heart can become a love for others. We simply cannot produce this kind of love on our own. We can do it for a while. We can try. We can be determined to love. We can do a few things that are nice or kind. But in the long run, the love that lasts to the end is something that comes from outside us. Even the love in a marriage that lasts to the end cannot come from within us. God has to put something into our midst and hearts and marriages and relationships if it's to survive. And so he says, having purified your souls by submitting to the truth, and remember the word for obedience means to listen by listening to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This love can't come from within us because Peter says that's perishable. And anything that comes from our human selves or our human works in this world is going to perish. It's like the flower of the field. It can grow and spring up strong, and people young in life can be full of that love, that enthusiasm, infatuation with other, another person in their life. We can be motivated by advancing ourselves in our lives and in this world. But sooner or later, that glory and beauty that man creates in this world starts to fade. Things in this world corrupt it. They make it grow old. It's like a flower that is beautiful for a day, but at the end, it's gonna fade away and not last. So only the word can give you an imperishable love, a love in your heart that will not fade away. It has to come from the word. You have to look to that word As you purify your soul before it gets all corrupted by the troubles of our flesh and the devil, earnestly seek this love, which comes from the living and abiding word of God. It was Solomon who was compared to a flower of the field by Jesus. And Solomon is indeed a good example of a bad example who springs up with wisdom and God's favor early in his life. He's called the most wise among all the people that the Bible ever mentions. He's the richest of all the kings. He's expanded the territory of Israel more than any other. He's accomplished a lot. But in his old days, Solomon writes Ecclesiastes, and he says, was all striving for the wind. It was trying to grab hold of something that didn't really exist. It was vanity. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So then Peter says in chapter two, put away all hatred, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. Put it away. Get rid of it. It will destroy you and be like a baby that is so dependent on God for everything that it can do nothing than want more than want to be fed. It can cry It can maybe roll around. It can express itself by flailing its arms. And we can do all those things. And sometimes we need to. But what is left for us is to depend on the Lord's milk, to long for Him to satisfy us, and to taste that He is good. We'll sing the next stanza, verse 7. Of our text today will bring us to the most important part of it all because there's been a lot of truth spoken so far, but none of it will make it real for you until you get this part. Come to Jesus. For all the things that we've said so far, it does, doesn't become real for you until this point where you come to Jesus. Perhaps the most important verses that Peter pens in this whole letter is right here, where he says, come to him. Come to Jesus. I'm not sure that this part needs anything more than that, but I can tell you why. There's a reason why in our church budget every year, we leave a place for property Maintenance. There's a reason why we replaced the shingles and the plywood. Why we're going to replace and fix the ceiling. Why we're gonna continue to need money to put into the property, and there's probably property committee guys out there that are now completely distracted from what we're talking about. But that's okay because let's bring it back to what Peter's talking about. When I say the word church, what do you think of? We go to church on Sunday morning. We have church, we are at church, but none of that is actually describing what church means in the scriptures. Because church is not the building, church is not the activity we're doing right now, church is you. In these verses, Peter is using the plural, not speaking to you individually, because in the south we would translate it, y'all. Y'all are living stones. Y'all are spiritual house. Y'all are a holy priesthood. Even better than that, it'd be all y'all are a holy place gathered in living people, not stones and foundations of brick, but in living, breathing relationships and people that are being built up. Now, why do we think we need a property committee and a budget and money and repairs to do on our homes and our churches, but we wouldn't need the same thing on the spiritual house that we're building, that Christ is building? Come to Him. Come to Him with your property maintenance report. Invest yourself in Him for the months to come. Attend to the things that He is showing you in your heart and in your life and in your marriage and family and congregation that need attention. Don't ignore it, it will compromise your health. It will compromise your marriage. It will compromise your ability to come to church, be in the pew, and listen. Because you'll constantly be afflicted by this imperishable seed that the devil is trying to sow. So come to him and remember who you are. You are a royal priesthood. The reason why we can say that we are worshiping together in the Lord and we are all holy is this truth that we're not just, I'm not just a priest. The pastors who step up here are not the only priests. There aren't just certain people who have elevated themselves to a higher level of being a priest. You are all part of the priesthood. So you're all responsible for the worshiping life of this community. And you can't count on the pastor to micromanage every corner of this church or to keep the foundations solid or to repair the roof. You wouldn't expect me to do that on my own on church work day. Come to Jesus and let him lead you together to do that. And it's the only way that we will stay healthy. And in doing so, we can proclaim the praises together of him who called you out of darkness. Together, we can urge one another, as Peter does, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which are waging war against your soul, to protect our conduct among outsiders, so that even when they might speak evil against Christians and say, hey, all Christians are just not worth the time of day, they'll meet one Christian who is, And therefore, they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. It's a strange hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen.